Watermark Golf Media. Well, it's hard to believe Thanksgiving's already in the rearview mirror, but whether you had a small group in your dining room or a large crowd socially distanced in your driveway, we hope you had enough turkey and stuffing to keep you feeling full, or as the boys from Boston say, to keep you feeling satisfied. Someone should be paying you to listen to this podcast. It's the Lip Outs Podcast with your host, golf course architect, author, and former looper for the llama, Nathan Crace. And now, from deep within the recesses of the basement beneath the studio at Watermark Golf Media, the man of the hour, the tower of power, too sweet to be sour, make you say, like Jerry Clower. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Crace. This is the Live Outs Podcast. Thank you for coming back. It's good to be back. This is our post-Thanksgiving episode. I am your host, Nathan Crace, along with co-host Landon Petty. Hey, Landon, how are you? Hey, Nathan, I'm good. How'd you like the... Uh, the radio DJ intro. Uh, it was, um, wow. I'm trying to think of the right word. It was entertaining. Uh, <laughs> you clearly have a face for radio. I've been told so, that many times. Uh, we got that established. I was just thinking, you know, budding amateur career, uh, and you've got this yeah. powerful booming voice and you know, you, you decide to, uh, play in the dirt for the rest of your life. So, uh, maybe, maybe there's something to be said about your psychological stability. Uh, maybe we should rethink this entire thing. There's definitely something to be said for the psychological stability. You know, back in <laughs> junior high, I wanted, back in Indiana in, I don't know, seventh grade maybe, we had a career fair, and you would go to the career fair, and you didn't talk to anybody or, or try anything out. You just filled out, I want to say it was like a little Scantron sheet, and mine came back and said you should be a radio disc jockey. And, of course, you know, I'm a... <laughs> I'm a, what, thir- what are you, 13, 12 or so at that time? And yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you become a radio disc jockey? So I never gave it much thought, but the, um, I also had a buddy that told him he should be a fish farmer. So I don't know how reliable those tests were, but <laughs> well, you're, you're not the, f- I'm having touchbacks and convulsions because you mentioned a Scantron form. I remember when they introduced <laughs> those to us back about that time. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, what's happening? You know, along about the same time that they got rid of milk cartons and went to those stupid little 
plastic pouches full of milk where you had to stab it with the, with the straw. It was a traumatic time in the eighth grade, you, you know, back you, in the late eighties. Did you go to school prison? <laughs> it seems like it in retrospect, but, uh, I can't, uh, I can't, I can't tell you how, how many uh, sleepless nights I spent over the Scantron form, you know, because there was all that stress if you didn't get the circle filled in just right and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I'm still hung up on the plastic so bag it, full of milk. Was it like a, in my mind, I'm seeing like a Ziploc a, bag with a little, uh, like a Capri Sun. It, it was. Poke the straw it, it down like it. A, it's a, it was exactly that, except it was clear. Uh, and it was just like a little, like a seal a meal pouch of milk. And they, the, the story we got is they were easier to transport. They stayed colder, uh, and and they were cheaper. You didn't have the little carton. Oh, no, and they were more environmentally friendly and all this jazz. But you had to hold this thing like a jellyfish, right? You had to <laughs> squeeze it and get a certain amount of tension on the plastic. And then you had this little sharp straw, you know, the little cocktail straw. Yeah, like a Capri about, Sun. You know, two sips of liquid out, you know, every 30 right. seconds. So anyway, you, you had to stab this thing. and. And it was great. It was it was really it was really funny because you look around the cafeteria and everybody's got their plate lunch. Of course, now they all my son's high school they have a pizza line and a, right. a hamburger line Chick-fil-A and a subway line and all. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we're all sitting around with our pressed meat patty and and you know mystery <laughs> vegetable of the day with this <laughs> pouch of milk. It, it is like. You know, what are we? Were we in space? It was just weird. But uh, now the scantron form. So. You went for radio DJ, and your friend was a fish farmer. Fish farmer, yeah. He's in That's, the computer. Uh, He's in the computer industry you, now. You, I was going to say, how do you psychologically test into being a fish farmer? That's a pretty good one. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, although I do know some people who have big catfish farms, and they do pretty well for themselves. But the yeah, um, I guess so. There, there you go. Yeah. So, I, but I I remember I used to sit around, and this is kind of funny i'll tell them myself a little bit but my dad had a you know what we used to call the boom box and we had a boom box and i would put a i would record uh songs off of an album and i would play that in the boom box and then i would have another tape player that had a microphone and i would practice hitting the post you know doing lead-ins to songs and things and i would make these tapes which i'm sure i'm sure my mother still has somewhere these you know, four or five tapes of me cassette tapes of me being a, a disc jockey and uh, I need to get her to find those and then burn them and bury them under the house. I said, you're pulling out all kinds of uh, late eighties terms, the boom box and disc oh. jockey. That's great. I said, I said disc jockey in front of my son not too long ago and he had no idea what I was talking about. When I explained the whole concept, right? I mean, it was as if he had just, you know, been given this epiphany, sure. uh, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, we, we, we'll call this the, trot down memory lane uh, episode instead of uh well it's that time of, it's, <laughs> it's that time of year but you know it's funny when you start talking about little things like that how it brings back things i mean i haven't thought about those tapes in 35 years i mean i it, it's just it's it's crazy how when you start to talk about things and it keeps bringing up other memories and perpetuates itself it, if you find them you should probably include like a snippet of those in in presentations you make when you're pitching uh, uh, the design job, you know, for a golf course. I mean, I, I think that really shows some depth to your character. So, oh, I thought you thought, meant. You know. I thought you meant play the tape and say, "Hire me for this, so I don't have to go back to doing this." <laughs> well, you know, we we know you love digging in the dirt, so uh, we'll yeah, just no, leave it with that. But, that's uh, a lot more fun. But speaking of holidays and, and memories, Thanksgiving's 
in the rearview mirror, as we said at the top of the show. So how uh, how did you guys go about spending? It's been a weird year, obviously, and you know they. I don't think too many people had big, large gatherings, but uh, how'd you guys do it? it? So it was it was a little off, a little weird. Obviously, we moved in June, and so my daughter and all of our family are back in Baton Rouge, and uh, the as you know, the cases are surging or the numbers are surging in, in certain parts of the country, Louisiana being one of them. So that in combination with just the logistics of it all and my wife having to work on Friday and so forth and so on, we just uh, went to a restaurant right down the street here and they had a really nice deal. We had traditional Thanksgiving dinner without having to cook or clean up. So it was really, uh, it was really interesting, but it was just the three of us and it was kind of quaint. And then we came back and took a two hour power nap and then kind of piddled around the house. So it was a nice, it was a good time. It was different, totally different because we're used to just like you, the big multi family gathering and you see everybody once or twice a year that you rarely see. And it was a lot more low key this year, but this, this year's kind of been low key on a lot of different levels. <laughs> oh, look, I'm ready for the year to be over with. I, we actually, we, we got smart a couple of years ago. There's a place here uh, close to home that smokes turkeys and smokes meats. And so rather than my wife trying to cook a turkey and then do everything else, we buy, you know, a couple of pounds of pre-cut smoked meat from this place. And then she does the sides and she does a killer sweet potato casserole and a, and a green bean casserole. And those are always the first things to go, but not as many people traveling as you said but hopefully we'll get things back to normal next year and you know speaking of traveling and i just want to go off a little bit on this you know i obviously travel a lot for work and as i've told you before i have this thing about public restrooms and i'm not a germaphobe it's it, the, my thing with public restrooms is not that i don't want to go in them or i don't want to touch anything my problem with with public restrooms is design it, this has been for years I thought you were this gonna is, say the public I thought you were going to say the, well, the problem with public restrooms is the public. Yeah, maybe. Well, then that, that does lead into part of this, but it, it's more of a, a design thing. And this goes way back years before COVID. You and I both travel a lot and we fly a lot. Yeah. And, have, and when you go right. into a restroom in an airport, there's no door on the restroom. You just walk in, you walk around the corner, you <laughs> go take care of things and you come back out. And, and I know that's ventilation. That's what we're well, going for here is ventilation. No, not even that so much. It's <laughs> it's it's the doors. Like now, you walk into a. I, I, let me back up. I stopped at a uh, convenience store that is not. I don't know. It it couldn't be more than a year old. Okay. Go into the restroom. You don't have to touch anything. The the urinal, the toilets flush themselves. You put your hand under the soap dispenser, and a little chicken egg glop of antibacterial soap falls into your hand. The faucets have a seeing eye dog on them that comes on and, you know, you don't have to touch anything. And then they've got the... They never work. They never work with the crap, but go ahead. You know, it's, it's the same old deal, but yeah, I'm with you. Following so far. Space age bathroom. That's right. And then you get to the hand dryer. And this was one of the ones that even had the little blue light to make you feel like you're getting some extra ultraviolet protection out of it, <laughs> more, more than just the hot air. So you do all this and then you get to the door and you have to grab the handle and pull it to open it. Now, in the time I sat there and washed my, or stood there and washed my hands, two guys came in, took care of their business, and walked out. So they grabbed that door and they and they walked out without washing their hands. Again, I'm not a germaphobe. I'd just rather not touch the handle after somebody just touched themselves and then touch the handle. I mean, that's just a, you know, that I'm sure I've never been in a women's public restroom, 
but I'm sure that men's public restrooms are a lot worse than women's. Oh, yeah. Women's restrooms, you know, restaurants, gas stations, whatever, they're way, way nicer because, you know, we have to admit they're uh, the fairer sex is a, a lot to, but more picky and cleaner about things like that. And uh, men are we're basically pigs. So it, it's fine. But uh, I'm with you. I had a buddy that used to tell me <laughs> that he hated going in, you know, CD gas station restaurants or anything. Like, oh, I'm sorry, restrooms or anything like that, because of what you just said, you know, there's always somebody in there that's uh, touching stuff. And we, we were in one one time and he didn't wash his hand. And I said, uh, dude, and he said, oh, I, listen, I, I just touched the cleanest thing in, in there. <laughs> right. So, I, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. He's like, no, I got some Germex in the car. He goes, come on, let's get out of here before well, we catch something. <laughs> you in, know, this is somewhere in, 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 uh, in the northern, northeastern Alabama. So it made perfect sense. <laughs> Every time I bring this up, somebody says, well, to be able to have a restroom with no doors on it, you have to have more room and that or you can't have doors that open out. Somebody said something about the vacuum of air that it creates. Look, I'll settle for old Wild West saloon doors. <laughs> You know, let's just, they can start, they can start two feet from the floor and they can come up to about six feet. So the average person can't come strolling by and looking in and just make them like saloon doors so that you can walk in or you can walk out and you just don't have to touch anything. You can back into it if you want to. I don't know how, uh, how this exactly works because certainly, um, the, the company I'm about to mention is not a sponsor or an advertiser on this podcast, but they don't have, I don't know that they have any in Mississippi. They certainly don't have any in Louisiana, but if you ever venture into Texas, uh, there actually is one in, in, um, in, uh, South Alabama near Gulf Shores, but it's, it's a rest, uh, rest station, gas station, miniature Walmart called Bucky's. Have you ever, you ever been to one of these? Have you ever I was, seen I was in one last week. It's the, it's, it's like somebody took, Let's build a gas station and turn it into this tourist attraction. It is the craziest thing. I mean, you can go in there and buy steaks and wine. I mean, it's crazy, but their bathrooms are off the chart. No doors. You know, it's big, wide areas. I mean, there's no chance of running anybody. And there's probably 40 uh, urinals, maybe more. And they all have a wall between them. And each one of them has a sanitizing station. And I mean, just top. Top notch. So I, ha- I strongly recommend any of listeners if you're ever out on the road and you see a Bucky's, it's worth stopping just to, just to see it. Oh, I mean, just the scale must, of it. They must have a huh? hundred ice. They must have a hundred ice machines outside. You know, yeah. on these things, and and they're just just really really crazy. So it's, it's it's somebody took a gas station and did it right and did it really really right. I mean, you can go in there and buy a pair of Costa sunglasses or a Yeti cooler. Right. No, <laughs> you, know, you a you fire pit. Of, you turn the corner into the restroom and it looks like you've wandered into the, the assembly hall in the United Nations. It's that big. And if, if the United Nations were surrounded ridiculous. with urinals, it's, uh, yeah. In fact, I, because I've seen the one, the one I actually stopped at last week was the one in South Alabama. I was on my way back from Florida. 240 gas pumps. The, the, not a truck stop. Yeah. These are just 240 and, gas pumps. I actually went and looked at the last one. It said 240 on it just because I was curious. I mean, just miles and miles of gas pumps. I will tell you this, that, that corridor of I-10 between, I guess, probably as far as Houston, all the way into, you know, the Northwest Florida, 
uh, area is heavily traveled during the summer because of people vacationing at the beach. And of course we live here now. And so we, we don't make that drive at the peak times as much as we used to, but on any given Saturday from May till the end of September, when, you know, that's when the, the rental, uh, the week swap Saturday to Saturday. So you've always got a massive traffic situation at that particular one you're talking about. It will back up for five and six miles because people getting off off and on there just to stop at that place. It's unbelievable. I noticed I mean, they were right actually the redoing the off ramp. They were they were making the off ramp two lanes. So I guess that's why the because of the track. Just if you own if you're listening to this program and you own a convenience store with a public restroom in it, if the door opens in and you have to gra- at least give us a paper towel dispenser. So, and not the air dryer, so you can at least grab a paper towel. And and I know again, I, it sounds like I'm like I'm a sociopath, but I, I'm. It's just for whatever reason, it's bothered no, me not, for fifteen years. So, do, do you experience uh, gas station bathroom guilt? You know, if you if you go to a gas station simply for the reason of using the bathroom, do you experience the guilt which compels you to buy? You know, a three dollar bottle of water or a pack of gum, oh. or in your case, probably mm. a pack a pack of cigarettes. I mean, I, I know how you like to smoke, so yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> the um, yeah, I'm I can't stand cigarette smoke. The um, <laughs> which is another rant, but it, it depends on the bathroom design. If it's a good bathroom design, I'll buy a bottle of water. If it's a poor design, I'll just I'll, I'll <laughs> run for it. No, I I, I am I'm just I'll, I'll, I'll get something to drink. You. I'll get something to drink. I mean that person's. They're providing a service. They're not, you know, they, they don't have a restroom just for anybody. So I'll go grab a drink. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a crazy person. I'm not a monster. So what our, what our listeners don't know necessarily is that in my full-time career, I'm in the fuel business and uh, I have a really good friend who is in the land fuel and services uh, gas stations and, and provides and sells gas stations. And I hear all kinds of stories from him, but uh it used to be that gas stations really made their money on the beer and cigarettes, lottery tickets and, you know, $3 bottles of water and all that. And they actually, uh, in years, recent years have been able to really, you know, they could make a few pennies on the gasoline, uh, as opposed, but that's, that was really the driving factors why gas stations became what they are is because that's where the profit centers were, where all the impulse buy things, you know, that, that you don't even think about paying $3 for a bottle of water, you know, but you'll sit there in the grocery store and you'll sweat over, you know, a carton of, uh, uh, of, of eggs or a gallon of milk and what the price is. So it's really an interesting, you know, it's like you enter a whole different level of psychology when you go into a gas station. Well, that's, that's uh, why it's, it's a, really funny. that's why it's a convenience store. You can go buy a two day old hot dog, use the restroom, grab the handle on your way out and then buy a, a plastic bag of milk for the, for the ride home. So, <laughs> a pouch. A right. Milk pouch, yeah. I do want to talk about one more thing. You know, we, we've got Brad Klein coming on. He's our guest in the second half. I've known I guess Brad. we should talk about golf a little bit. <laughs> we should talk about golf maybe, a little bit. Maybe so. But I met Brad years ago, and, and we've gotten to know each other. But Brad was with us uh, two years ago out at uh, Champions out in Houston, the Woodlands in Houston, for our ASGCA annual meeting. And I was just noticing this morning, it completely slipped up on me, but the U.S. Women's Open is at Champions this week as we record this. And 
That is a fascinating uh, golf club. I don't know how much you know about it, but when we were out there, we met Jackie Burke Jr., who was at the time 95, so I guess he's 97 or so now, and the oldest yeah, living oldest living Masters champion. He won the Masters and the uh, and the I think the PGA back in the 50 I believe he's the oldest living major champion of any of any major you you're know? probably you're so probably not right necessarily the masters you're, you're probably right but I'm which just, is impressive i mean you, you know you think about it, you get to 97 years think about living that guy's life right i mean you know he's he, he won a couple of majors had a storied career i think he won 16 other tournaments golf hall of fame and you and you just he builds champions and and you know and it, it just has a great great story and he's 97 years old and he's still up and around you know that's he's he's 50 years older than i am and he probably feels 20 years younger than me <laughs> he he's not just up and around he goes to work every day he shows up every day and he doesn't just show up and sit in a chair he's out moving around he's talking to members i mean when we were there he insisted everybody come look in his office his office looks like a mini World Golf Hall of Fame museum. I mean, his master's jacket's hanging up in there. He's got all kinds of pictures and autographs and things from famous people and, and things from all the years. But like you said, I mean, 97 years old, 95 at the time, you think of what he was able to amass. But it was it was fun being able to play that golf course because the day we played, in fact, they'd already ripped out the putting green. The day we played was the last day the course was going to be open. They started construction the next day. And then, of course, the women's open, and this is the 75th women's open i guess and it was supposed to have been back in the summer it got pushed back because of the pandemic but if you get a chance to watch it on tv watch that uh that's that's a really just the history involved in that golf course and uh, and mr burke and his legacy there is just really really amazing well i will tell you this i have a couple of colleagues that uh, live in that area that part of houston uh, I actually have uh, one of my one of the uh, the companies I work with is is there in the Woodlands area, actually in Conroe, and that is a really really cool part of Houston. I mean, and it, it is a neat area, and the Woodlands themselves. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but a couple of years ago, actually it may be several years ago, Exxon Exxon Mobil moved their global headquarters from Dallas to that part of Houston there in the woodlands. And so you can imagine, you know, the size and scale and scope of what's going on there. And that club is just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to believe how nice it is. I, I read an interesting article where um, one of the, one of the members mentioned that when you join the club and every club's got their own little nuances uh, of how you join and what you have to do, you know, the club I joined, we had to submit a bio and, uh, you know, make a few phone calls and then send the check. And that was it, you know, but this one I've read where, you know, Jackie Burke Jr. calls you into his office and it quizzes you about the game, like the, the, the rules and, you know, the whole this. So it's a purist kind of place, which is really, really exciting to me because, you know, that that's that's kind of an old school thing that's that's sometimes has a negative stigma and it's kind of dying, but what a neat, what a neat story, you know, on how they, on how he kind of filters through who he wants at the course. Cause the game is important to him and the rules are important to him and, you know, keeping it alive. It's, it's, it's a, it's a great story. No, absolutely. And it really, if my uh, memory serves me correctly, men's locker room, saloon doors walking into it. So he was, <laughs> 
light years ahead of his time. So don't hold me to that, I but I, I do think. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll ask Brad about that. Maybe he remembers when Brad Klein comes on the second half of the podcast. We will do a quick commercial break. We'll have Brad Klein when we get back right after this. In 2013, the U.S. government began shutting down programs to cut costs. But closing one secret Department of Defense program in America's biggest city set loose one of America's darkest secrets. Now the CIA, DOD, and foreign agents are scouring New York City, racing against each other to find one man who could have all the answers 60 years after his death. Vincent Vino, a thriller by Nathan Grace. Available now in print and ebook from Moonbay Media. Whether it's satisfaction or satisfied, I tell you what will satisfy you, and that's our guest on this episode of the Lipouts Podcast, Brad Klein. If you've been around golf at all, you know who Brad is. He was the writer and editor for Golf Week for more than 20 years before he moved on to Golf Channel and Golf Advisor. So welcome, Brad Klein. Hey, Brad, how are you? Uh, fine, Nathan. We're, we're in winter here in Connecticut, so um, I got a lot of free time because there's no golf right now. I bet you do. Brad, my co-host Landon. Landon, meet Brad. Hey, Brad. Hey, Landon. Nice to meet you. Pleasure. Are you down there in uh, Mississippi? <clears throat> no, no. I avoid Mississippi at all costs. Uh, people <laughs> like Nathan live there. So uh, I, uh, I'm originally from Louisiana, Baton Rouge, born and raised guy. But in June of this year, my family and I moved to the Florida Panhandle. So we're in, uh, we're in Seagrove, uh, but kind of between Destin and um, Panama City. So Red, Redneck Riviera, huh? <laughs> That's right. often referred to. But I will tell you this. It is freezing here today. It's 50, 52 degrees. So everybody's in a little bit no. of panic because it's not normal in this part of Florida. 52 so. degrees. I would have worn a uh, just a shirt and a, not even a sweater. <laughs> I was down there at the beginning of last week and when the cold front came through and Tuesday morning walked out of the hotel to get in my truck, I had to turn my truck around to face the sun to melt the frost off of it before I could go anywhere because I didn't have anything to scrape the ice off with it. I mean, it was crazy. Frost, frost is a very scary, frost is a scary thing in Florida. I mean, that's, 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 that's did you close the schools? I mean, did you, uh, no. <laughs> not, not Most of them are already closed, but that's a different, right. that's a different story. But. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, and again, the pandemic has affected different states so differently, and, and that's one reason why we wanted to bring the podcast back to give people something to listen to and, and talk about and, and kind of escape the reality of some of the news around the world. But, Brad, one of the things that I always like to ask people when they come onto the podcast, and sometimes we get around to it, sometimes we don't, but I'm always interested in how people get into 
the game of golf, how they were first exposed to it, what drew them in. Sometimes they were very young. A lot of times they were introduced by a parent. Sometimes it was later in life. How did young Brad Klein discover the game of golf? Well, uh, it's a simple story. I've told it and written it many times. I was 12 years old. And I uh, had been enamored with this little golf course that we drove by on the way to the beach in the, the metropolitan New York area. And I used to gawk out the back window at this thing. And uh, I got on my bicycle one summer day, pedaled over, parked by the gate, walked over, crossed the stone bridge and a little creek, walked down to the side of the fairway. And in the distance, I saw two players on the tee. And one of them swung, and I saw the glint of the shaft with the sun, and I watched the ball go up, and as it butterflied down, I fell in love. And that is a true story. I was 12 years old, uh, and I'll never forget that emotional epiphany that I had. And it it gets better because it turns out it was the Inwood Country Club, uh, which was the site of a very famous tournament and many years later. I took our daughter out there to the, I said, let's, I'm going to take it to the exact spot. I fell in love with golf when I was 12 years old. She was about 11 then. And I was in my, I don't know, forties or thirties or something. And, um, so I walked over the stone bridge. It turns out to have been the Swilkin burn sort of copy for the 18th hole at Inwood. And I walked down to the site of the fairway and I said, I think it was exactly here. And I turn around and there's a plaque on the ground. The plaque had been recently installed, and the plaque said, on this spot in 1923, Bobby Jones hit the two iron in the playoff against Crookshank to win the U.S. Open. And, I mean, that is a true story. The spot that I fell in love with was exactly the spot that Jones hit the um, two iron. The plaque was put in later, and that emotional epiphany for me is something that I have never lost. And so whenever I... And thinking about writing something, I can just literally channel that emotional sensibility into my fingertips, and uh, I just start typing away. That's a true story. That's amazing. That I, you know, I fell in love with the game at Pebble Beach. Well, not at Pebble Beach, watching the Bing Crosby program on TV at Pebble Beach, but kind of that same thing. I just I'd never really seen a golf course before, and I was looking, and every once in a while, but this was back. I guess they still had the Goodyear blimp, and they'd show an aerial shot, and I was just yeah. flabbergasted. And I was, you know, this was the greens and the and the yellows and the browns and the ocean and the rocks and the seals and the beach. And I just fell in love with it. And I, it seems like it was last week. Well, if you're like me, you probably got those. I used to get these large sheets of oak tag with colored pencils or something. And I would draw to exact scale. I always had the scale of a uh, one millimeter equals a yard. So uh, I was the master of the 305-yard dog leg back then because that was a foot. <laughs> and um, I used to draw these holes to scale all the time. Anytime I'd been on a golf course to caddy, anything I saw on TV, I, I sat and drew. I wish I'd saved those. Uh, my mother threw them all out, of course. But uh, I think like a lot of guys, I know Forrest Richardson, who's now president of the, AS, uh, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, saved all of those drawings when he was a kid. And um you probably did the same thing, doodling away. I, Here we are. I, I do have a bunch, you know, making although a living at it. mine weren't to scale, and they certainly weren't millimeters because I went to public school in Indiana, and we didn't know what the metric system was. So, Well, my father was a Jewish engineer, so, you know, everything was precise. <laughs> well, everybody knows you for writing, obviously, in, in your time with Golf Advisor and Golf Channel, but it, some things that 
I think most people probably don't know, and, and I know a little bit about, but I wanted to ask you to talk about it, was what you did in the 20 years or so before you actually started writing as a career, because I think it's a pretty fascinating story. Well, um, I was fascinated by golf architecture. I read everything. Uh, and um, But I you know, was going to go to college, went to graduate school, uh, kind of always fascinated by golf. I wrote a little bit when I was in graduate school. I, st- I uh, went to a graduate program for, for a PhD in political theory and international relations in uh, 1976 and did a little bit of freelance dabbling and writing here and there. Um, not much, but um, I always kind of wanted to get into writing and I wondered about it. I started caddying during graduate school. Uh, I was caddying on the PGA tour. It was a lot easier to get on the tour back in 1976 and so. And uh, I met Herbert Warren Wynn, the great writer, and he was very encouraging. He said, stay in academia. You want to write? Fine. Golf, but uh, stay in academia. And I did. So I earned my Ph.D., went on to a teaching job uh, first in upstate New York on the Canadian border at St. Lawrence University, uh, then uh, down to Trinity College in Hartford, and then ultimately at uh, Clark University in Massachusetts. And um, I wrote a book on a U.S. nuclear defense policy and the history of NATO. Spent two years in Berlin, uh, Germany, all over uh, doing research. Uh, actually, was a researcher with the Social Democratic Party in Bonn for a summer. And um, I lectured on NATO double decision and nuclear weaponry and all that. And lectured at war colleges uh, and had an academic career. And I was on the verge of a tenure decision. But I was also then starting to do more freelance. And um, I just was unhappy in academia. My wife was an academic. She enjoyed the life. I did not uh, for all sorts of reasons, partly uh, financial. I was I was actually making more money at this time uh, doing freelance golf. I was working partly for Golf Week, writing a column. <laughs> I uh, hooked up with an Internet startup company called iGolf back in 1994. And I was a lot of freelance work. I was working for Lynx magazine, writing their modern classic series. So I transitioned slowly, but I spent uh, 14 years, uh, well, 20 years, if you include graduate school. I spent um, six years in a graduate program that included um, overlap with time in Germany, came back, taught, wrote, published, Was um, had a full academic profile with major publications everywhere, lecturing all over, but I wasn't happy. I was happy around a golf course and I basically transitioned over slowly, very slowly. And then in 1998, uh, I uh, resigned from my teaching position when I would have begun the process of going up for tenure. I don't know whether I would have gotten it, but I knew I would have been unhappy. And um, it enabled me by then to, um, you know, it was a sort of seamless transition. I started uh, at Golf Week with a publication called Superintendent News. I was a founding editor. I was running their, had started up and was running their uh, national golf course ranking system called Golf Week's Best. I ended up running that for 20 years. So um, the um, uh, my training as an academic has been very helpful. Um, I did my research. I wrote a dissertation on uh, early modern European state building from Machiavelli through Frederick the Great. Did a lot of the research in uh, Gothic German type, uh, was in libraries, museums, uh, armories. Uh, I know my way through the archives. And so when I started writing golf books, I 
basically applied the same kind of scholarly intensity. When I did the, uh, the biography of Donald Ross, discovering Donald Ross, which came out in 2001, it won the uh, Herbert Warren Wynn Book Award by the USGA. I spent three years on that project, and I was at the Pinehurst uh, Archives Library for a hundred days. I went to uh, all eight of his houses and spent time there. Met people who knew him. Met his uh, met his da daughter. Met people who caddied for him. Uh, so I applied the same scholarly intensity to that book. And um, I have to say that my educational background and my temperament is very much um, one where I want people to learn from what I know. So one of the things I did at Golf Week when I was writing all that time, we started up a panel of uh, golf course raiders and evaluators. I lectured every time we had a gathering. Um, I gave a slideshow talk, a PowerPoint. Uh, I brought in architects. I brought in superintendents. I wanted people to learn. And so I was very adamant about using the ratings process to help people understand and enjoy the game. I used my platform in that column at Golf Week for 20 years to basically hammer away at certain principles that I thought were important, like restoration, respect for classical architecture, tree management, firm and fast, organic or organic style golf course maintenance, respect for superintendents, a de-emphasis on the PGA Tour. All of those principles I was very adamant about. And in that sense, I think <laughs> I distinguished myself from my peers, particularly Ron Witten at Golf Digest, who's very knowledgeable. He knows way more about architecture than I do, but I never thought he was using his platform to make a case. And so while his writing was incredibly detailed and helpful and scholarly and um, uh, knowledgeable about the architecture, I wanted to uh, take a position uh, as a, a voice in the game, if you will. And, um, I've been accused as a result by some of the, the new folks, the woke folks at Fried Egg and laying up for being arrogant and old fashioned and elitist and a snob. Uh, my choice was simply to use a platform to voice a particular vision of the game. That's what I tried to do. So there's a temperamental carryover from my academic style to my golf writing. At what point were you caddying i know you were you've spent some time there as uh, working as a caddy where where did that fall in well i started caddying i grew up in new york city um right at the point where the city gives way to long island down in the corner of queens queens nassau county so i started caddying at clubs down there in that five towns area right by kennedy airport uh, when i was 14 years old and i loved it and then i won a caddy scholarship which helped me partially go to college and uh, then I was upstate New York. Uh, Binghamton, New York had the BC Open, which was a tour event back then. Uh, it was a regular tour event. I caddied in that. Um, when I started graduate school in 1976, I then spent each of the next seven summers breaking away from academic work just to immerse myself for two, three months on the tour. So I basically caddied uh, for the summers between 76 and 83. And during that time, I was in graduate school, just about finished my PhD. I spent one summer, I think, overseas. I caddied, spent uh, quite a bit of time caddying in St. Andrews when I was overseas, uh, in looking at golf courses in Britain. And then, um, but basically, I caddied uh, 76 to 83. And during that time, I was Bernhard Langer's first U.S. tour caddy. 
in 81, 82 for a few events. And um, we're still talking. Of course, he's making more money than I am. And his caddy's making more money than I ever imagined as well. He's like a, an ATM machine in terms of the consistency. But I, still, right. I had him when he was 24 years old at the World Series of Golf in 1981 at Akron. And you could see right away, he was different. He was completely different from everybody else. Now, I had arranged to caddy for him because at the time I was fluent in German and I arranged with uh, the IMG, the agency that represented him in Dusty Murdoch uh, through the London agency. I arranged to caddy for him and I showed up at Akron ready to caddy for him in German and in meters. And uh, all I can tell you is that I showed up the first day um, and he said, how'd you convert the uh, yards to meters? I said, 0.90. He said, no, it's 0.91. So I had to uh, go back and rejig my entire yardage book that night. Brad, you mentioned uh, your your particular outlook on the game and your view and, and, and the position you've taken. And I think that's one that's been very much in danger of being lost uh, on, a, on a lot of people. Um, I look at the younger generation. My son is 17. He's an avid golfer. And, you know, Nathan's been a, a the high school golf coach, you know, as one of his many gigs. And I, I just, I'm curious during this, uh, this strange year we've all gone through. And of course in, in the Northeast, a lot of the States have been a lot more restrictive. Um, how do you, how do you feel about the resurgence of the game and the number of rounds that were played this year compared and, 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 and what that's going to do, you know, kind of give a little shot in the arm to the industry that, that I kind of feel like was on the precipice of, of really turning the corner the wrong direction. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on how this year is going to affect the game going forward in the next couple of generations of players? Landon, it's a great question because there's no doubt that the game was just demographically in a bit of a decline every year since 2000 or so we were losing one maybe two percent of players in rounds and i saw that and i'm sure nathan has seen that with the course closings uh, you know golf courses that used to do 30,000 rounds were doing 24,000 rounds there was a glut of golf courses that weren't making money and uh, there was kind of a disconnect as well between the pga tour and the average golfer and um, I think what's interesting, you know, they're playing their game, power golf, manicured, perfectly amazing golf courses. And the conditions that most players were on were very different. And um, what's fascinating this year, first of all, the round count is up about 15 to 20 percent, according to the National Golf Foundation. This October, compared to last October, round count is up 32 percent. For the year, it's going to be about 50 million additional rounds. That's the biggest boost in the industry since a guy named Tiger Woods came on the scene in 1997. Um, and what's fascinating is that the people who are playing golf now are playing golf not under country club conditions, not under perfect manicure. Half the bunkers in the country aren't even being raked. People have still not put out, um, uh, what do you call it, ball washers and towels. They're kind of making do with what they have. And so one of the great – I spent a lot of time talking to superintendents because I know Nathan does. And one of the things they'll tell you is it's – while it's been very difficult for superintendents because you have to have much more attention to sanitary procedures, you, the staff has to be isolated, they're wearing masks, you have uh, split times with the work staff, the setup of the golf course is easier because um, – People don't care as much. They're just happy to play golf. And so I think what's great about the year in this perverse way, 
and of course we would have been better off without the nightmare. It's been a very strange year. But in terms of just golf, I think what people have discovered is that, boy, I'm so happy to play golf. I don't really care whether, you know, the bunker isn't raked or the greens are rolling at eight and a half instead of 10. And, uh, you know, cause the flags in any way and half of it has that, that rubber, whatever that thing is called, uh, the collar in the, you know, we did that for a few months. So the conditions of the golf course have been a little scruffier. Um, the, the staff, for example, can't get their work done as early as possible, as early as they used to. So now play is intermixed with guys who are on mowers and uh, top dressing machines. And I think it's been great for people to understand that, you know what? Stop complaining about perfect conditioning. Just be, just be grateful you're playing golf. And I have to say, I was very surprised and, and pleased with the way Augusta National presented the Masters this year because obviously they're presenting it in November. The conditions were not ideal. The rye had not fully established. Under, there was that undercoating, so to speak, or underbelly of residual Bermuda grass that had never died out. The sun angles were lower. If you watched carefully on the 13th tee, the par five, uh, famous par five at Augusta, there was never one drop of sunlight on that tee during the entire four days of play. And by Sunday, it was kind of a mud bath, that tee. And you know what? Good for them. They presented it that way because that's the conditions that they had to deal with. Uh, it wasn't all prettified with all sorts of blooming, this and that. And um, I think the year has shown that golfers will tolerate far more diverse conditions just to be appreciative of play. So that, to me, is a really unexpected great sign of the year how, how as difficult as it's been the other thing i've noticed i know that there are a lot of people who are jumping into solo carts and riding around and uh you know for safety reasons sometimes although you also see friends who show up at the course together they drive to arrive together and then they set, take separate carts because they kind of like the cowboy feel of riding around all over the place with a solo <laughs> cart but a lot more people are walking you can't buy uh, you know, I bought a Walker trolley this year, which I've been using like crazy. And those pull carts or push carts, they sold out so fast that there was a uh, what's the word a lag in the inventory delivery. So people are walking more, and um, I think it's great for the game. So overall, uh, the golf industry, no one could have anticipated this a year ago, or even at the start of the pandemic, because it looked for a while like golf was you know half the courses in the country were going to be shut down. And the, the industry did a very good job of lobbying state and regional health authorities to make a case that uh, the exercise and the relative openness of the outdoors provided a safe environment. And it turns out golf is about the healthiest thing you can do while maintaining social distancing. So um, uh, I think it's been great for the game. And I, I hope the lessons carry over to next year and beyond. I really think that uh, if you look at the equipment sales, especially off course retail, mm -hmm. those numbers yep. are up so much. I just, I can't imagine someone new to the game or relatively new to the game investing a thousand dollars into equipment and then just not playing anymore next year. So I think even when we start getting the vaccine and we start to kind of get this situation under control a little better, I don't think we're going to see a lot of people just leave the game. I'm, I'm really do. I'm very hopeful that, that they'll hang on. Well, one of the big changes that's going to stick around is people are not going to spend nearly as much time in an office, even under the best possible conditions. The vaccine fully works. We're back to so-called, you know, normal, whatever that means anymore. 
by the second half of 2021, a lot of people, a lot of companies are going to realize I don't need to have secretaries, infrastructure, heating, uh, a, a big expensive real estate building when people can work at home. So if people are working at home and set their own schedules, they'll have more time for golf. So I agree with you. I think the people who, who bought equipment uh, and discovered or rediscovered the game this year are going to stick with it. Something else they'll have more time for is reading. And I would encourage everyone to get a copy of Brad's book discovering donald ross you can get a copy at discoveringdonaldross.com i assume brad there's still time if they wanted to get them for holiday gifts uh, there's still time to do that i have a copy oh, yeah. i have a copy you were you very uh, very kind to sign for me from a, a year or so ago that it is just a it is the definitive book on donald ross so if you if you have any interest in golf course architecture at all or know someone who does i would encourage you to get a copy of brad's book again that's discoveringdonaldross.com yeah, I got to get rid of those boxes in the garage. Uh, my wife has been bugging me because uh, there there isn't enough room for the lawn mowers and the and the lawn chairs this winter. So, uh, but I've been well, you know nice. the book keeps selling because it's a it's a serious study of a, an architect who did 410 golf courses, and um, I'm really proud that it is as serious a study of an artist in golf as you'd find, say, for Matisse or Degas or Picasso or someone who's a you know recognized uh, painter said so, so i i thought the craft of architecture and golf needed uh, an uplift if you will i'm happy to uh, send those out in time for for the holiday season for christmas sounds like a great stocking stuffer i'm probably i need to get one for my son <laughs> you it'll, have to it, you have to have it, a big stocking it's a big book <laughs> it, careful it'll it'll tip the tree over Right. You might might want to put that one under the tree. You know, we were touched on the pandemic and we were talking about how that had impact. You know, there are a lot of people out there, obviously, that are either out of work or their work is completely upside down. They're working from home. Their uh, kids are not in school. There's just so many things are different right now. There's a lot of people with some challenges, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. In fact, on our, our next episode of the podcast, I'm going to have Dave Wilbur on here. and We'll be talking about mental health and, and how a lot of this has impacted people both in and out of golf. But I know, Brad, that you spent 20 years at Golf Week and you left Golf Week and you've written about this. You, you left Golf Week to go to Golf Channel and Golf Advisor. And then kind of out of the blue last year, they let you go there at Golf Channel and Golf Advisor. And, and I thought maybe you sharing that story might help people who have going through something similar right now to learn how you were able to cope with that and how you came out the other side uh, you know, stronger and better. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, and, um, you know, the thing is that you learn right away that in the economy, there's no shame in losing your job because it's not your control. In the case of Golf Channel, a Golf Advisor, I was very happy there. I had a great group, bunch of people. But they had some challenges. And um, for financial reasons, as they explained, they were letting me go. And um, it was over a phone call just over a year ago. And um, I can't say I... I hate double negatives. I can't say I wasn't expecting it, uh, but I was really pissed about it. But at the moment on the phone, I was very professional. I just said, well, let's let's go. Uh, what's it going to take in terms of, you know, whatever transition? And so, you know, I, whatever you feel inside, you, you don't express that. You just sort of deal with it. I hung up the phone and I got really angry and uh, scared and worried for literally 10 minutes. My wife wasn't home at the time, and I wasn't going to call her. I was going to wait for her to get home. And uh, then I remembered 
the kinds of presentations I used to make to superintendents. I, I do a lot of lecturing for career development for superintendents and golf pros. And one of the things I tell them is always assume you're about to be fired and act and work that way so that you have a plan B right behind plan A. And uh, not to, not that you work scared, but that you, you, you know, you have to have control of your life to some extent and you have to be prepared. So um, I was scared out of my mind for like 10 minutes after that phone call. And uh, then I just thought, my God, I got to do something here. So I immediately called a couple of magazines and told them. Uh, I didn't say, by the way, that I lost my job and I was looking for work because um, people never respond well when they think you're desperate. So what I said was, I'm now in a position where I can take on some outside freelance work. That's how I phrased it. And um uh, and I was already in the process of developing my own website, uh, which I got the URL. That's uh, www.bradleykleingolf.com. And um, basically what I did is I cobbled together over the next few weeks um, enough work to make myself feel like, okay, I can make this work. And um, you sort of um, go into a different mode. And um, I didn't have the security of a regular paycheck, but I've actually always been enjoying the um, the entrepreneurial and uh, self promotional component of the of the industry. One of the things I, you know, Nathan, it's be interesting to talk about this because uh, I lecture to superintendents and maybe architects are the same way. I found this out when I was an academic as well. Nobody ever teaches you anything about career management. They teach you about what you need to do to do your job. They teach you about drainage. They teach you about uh, engineering and specs and drawings and professionalism, but they never talk to you about how to promote your career, how to present yourself. And that's stuff you have to learn on your own. And as you know, some of your colleagues are great as architects and not so great as businessmen. So one of the things I tried to do is think about I was pretty lucky. I had always spent a lot of time tending to my relationships with editors, uh, with people in the business, and I called upon them, and um, they were very responsive. And um, so the result was that I cobbled together a column in Golf Course Industry on maintenance. I've been doing regular work for Golfers Journal, the USGA Golf Journal, the Green Section Record, uh, a website called MorningRead.com. I, I landed another book project, Club History, and I also do quite a bit of design consulting, and I had arranged already to line up some longer-term commitments instead of just day-to-day -day jobs, uh, what you might call on a retainer basis, consulting arrangements with four or five clubs, most of them in the area, as it turns out. And so by the time the pandemic hit, which was two months later, um, all of a sudden now I'm home. Uh, you know, for 30 years, I was traveling 150 days a year on the road, and now I had to do everything out of the house, but I have enough resources. I have, you know, you have access to Google Earth. I have a very good library. I have thousands and thousands of files, so I can do a lot of work at home, even consulting, and I've, the consulting arrangements I've developed are all within a driving range, uh, within drivable range. Um, I'm working at five or six Donald Ross courses. Uh, I've, I've aligned with Gil Hans on a project with Kyle Franz on another, with Matt Dusenberry, with Paul Albanese, with Andy Staples. So I piece together, and while my income is down um, from what I was making, I feel like, you know what? I have more control over my life. I'm able to sleep late now. I have my own schedule. 
and I'm actually enjoying it. So uh, I'm not sure I would choose that op- choose that um, path again, but I, I tried to make the best of it. And so what I would tell everybody is uh, fall back on what you love to do. Fall back on what's important to you, what people respond to. Don't uh, eat yourself up emotionally over conditions that are not within your control. Um, you know, um, and um, also be conservative in your spending. It kind of helped too that um, we were careful all along. And um, so, I think it's something that everybody has to deal with. Uh, and you know, and nobody in the industry talks about what really goes on in their important life. Nobody talks about divorce. Thank God that's not been an issue. My wife's been great. But nobody talks about losing your job. Nobody talks about emotional complexity. That's why I think your conversation with Dave Wilbur coming up is going to be fascinating because he's dealt with some very tough issues. And I think it's great that the industry, I think golf more than others, uh, there's a collegiality and a support and a network behind the scenes that allows people to be fully human about it. And uh, Cormac uh, up at the... Um, uh, in Nova Scotia, who does the uh, the, the mindful superintendent, uh, the stuff Dave Wilbur is doing, all of these ways of coping, dealing with complexity, uh, that's what life is about. And, uh, y- you know, I don't know if it takes strength. It just takes uh, kind of a focus and simplicity. I will say and this. Li- listening to yourself, listening to an inner self. Absolutely. And I will say this for for myself, you know, one of the best parts of being able to design golf courses for a living other than, you know, it's something that I love to do and it's something that I can sort of leave behind for my kids and grandkids down the road to say, oh, that's what dad or granddad did that. For the most part, they're they're going to be there for a while. The other part is being able to work my schedule around ball games. You know, I've, I've been fortunate. My daughter is now 24. She played basketball and softball. My our oldest son played basketball. Our youngest son is playing basketball now. And I've been able to yeah. attend just about probably 98.5% of their ball games because I've been able to work my schedule around that. And for a lot of people, that's not possible. So I think if you have that opportunity to take things into your own hands, like you said, don't panic about it. Sit down, put together a plan and make the most of it. You know, I, 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 being home has been great for me uh, because you find out how important and how wonderful it is to have close family, who your friends really are, who the people uh, you care about and who care for you. I've been spending a lot more time the last year just writing letters, calling, emailing, texting, contacting people who I, who I care about and who, and who respond accordingly. And so when you give time like that, Rather than, you know, you're off somewhere and you're missing Halloween or you're missing graduation or a birthday. Uh, it's so rewarding because that's the stuff that really is special about your life that no one else can know about emotionally. And um, I, I think it's so important to to immerse yourself in that and to take pride in that. No, and, th- and those are the days and the hours and the events and the times that you cannot get back. And I think more people in the golf industry, I think, have, have started to realize that a little bit. And it's, you know, you spend a lot of times, especially superintendents and golf professionals, you spend a lot of time at, at work. In recent years, I've I've known guys and, and gals personally who have said, well, you know, I'm, I'm just stepping away from some things. I'm, I'm letting my staff 
do more things so that I can go to my kid's ball game or my kid's got to play or a birthday or things like that. And I think that's healthy because, again, what you don't want to do is look back in 20 years because it's gone in the blink of an eye. You don't want to look back and go, oh, well, I miss those. I miss those times. I wish I'd been there. That's right. That's right. Because that's uh, what your relationships are based on. And that's what you're that's what's going to resonate with your kids and your spouse and your family. Yeah. They well, respect that, too. I really appreciate you carving some time out of your busy schedule uh, to be with us, and especially for sharing that last part and the story of Brad Klein from the beginning. I think it's an interesting story that a lot of people don't know. They just assume you start writing and and, uh, spend your life doing that, but there's always a lot more when you peel back the layers. So I appreciate you for being here and taking the time uh, on the podcast. Well, pleasure. And, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking together and, um, uh, good luck with your novels, by the way. I've enjoyed reading um, the, the one that I read, and um, that's another part of your life. And all those things that uh, matter uh, to share is great. So, and and yeah, thank you for to. writing the blurb talking about Vincent Vino. And one of these days, I'm going to get that out in a little more uh, bass volume when I have some time to sit down and actually put some effort behind it. But again. Brad, thank you for being here. Be sure to follow Brad on Twitter at Bradley S. Klein. Uh, his website is BradleyKleinGolf.com. And buy the book. Go go do it right now. You've got time to get it before the holidays. Go to DiscoveringDonaldRoss.com. Buy the book for yourself or someone else on your Christmas list who likes golf, is interested in golf course architecture. Of course, we'll put the links to all of that on our website at LipOutsPodcast.com. Be sure to follow us at LipOutsPodcast. And if you don't do it already subscribe to the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. You can go to lipoutspodcast.com. You can find all the different platforms there. Subscribe to it. Rate it. Give us a review. Every little bit helps. So for Brad Klein and Landon Petty, I'm Nathan Crace saying we'll see you here next time we tee it up on the Lipouts Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Watermark Golf Media. All rights reserved.